I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When he was a little boy growing up in Trinidad, he'd go to the beach and collect the feathers of turkey vultures. Then he'd turn the feathers into quill pens. That precocious boy would grow up to be a scribe for the queen, with his work being displayed on royal proclamations. Today, Paul Antonio Atong travels the world, teaching that writing things down with care and attention can be an act of meditation. So over the years, I've been working on this calligraphy and meditation class that I've developed, which helps the practitioner to to focus their breath in tandem with the way in which the lines are written. And it generates this beautiful meditative field. And when I teach this class, people cry. They cry all the time. And some of the, some of the comments are, I, I'm feeling things that I've hidden away, their memories that have resurfaced, that I've locked away. And this practice is helping me to, or it has helped me to confront it, but in a, a peaceful way. In any class taught by Paul Antonio, also known as P.A. Scribe, the act of writing your own name becomes profound. There are a number of ways that I, I help students recognize that there is more happening here than just pretty writing. Recently, when I was in Trinidad giving a lecture, I taught them how to breathe. And I said, I want you to write your name. Close your eyes, take your fire finger, which is your forefinger on the dominant hand and write your name breathing rhythmically like this. And then I said to them, slowly open your eyes. I said, how do you feel? People said, oh my gosh, it's like the whole day just drained away. PA Scribe coming up. Later this hour, when Gursaib Singh moved to Canada as an international student, he knew it would be challenging. What he didn't realize was just how much he'd need to learn to find his footing in a new country without having any sense of community. There were no resources available, like there was no blueprint or any kind of guidelines available. Okay, when you come to Canada as an international student, do these, these, these things. Your life will be simpler. There was nothing like that. We just went with the flow. So it was like, we are living your life and simultaneously you are learning things. You'll meet Gursaib and you'll hear how his YouTube videos are making a difference for incoming international students and how that community is showing up for him in unexpected ways. Also this episode, there are all kinds of ways you can hide who you are and where you come from if you feel the need. Anil Sankar became so good at it, his relatives used to call him the whitest guy in the family. Anil spent that much of his life trying to hide his Indo-Caribbean heritage. One of my best friend's parents asked me, really interested, like, your dinners must be fantastic at your house. You guys probably eat, like, dal, or you might eat curries and things like that. And then, and I was like, no, no, I, am, I eat, like, um, 
craft dinner. Yeah, we eat a lot of craft dinner, uh, spaghetti, uh, hamburgers, all of it a lie. And it was because it just didn't seem socially acceptable. That, those are the days in the 70s when people generally talked about curry. It was a pejorative, right? It was like, oh, do you eat curry? Do you guys eat curry at home? And it's kind of pronounced in that way I remember it. It'd be like, no, no, what are you, what? What are you talking about? We were born right here. My parents too. Just don't come over, ever. It took Anil years to sort out those feelings. What brought him to a moment of realization? Music. You'll meet Anil a little later. Well, maybe it's fitting that this episode is full of music, uh, pens and ink and meditation, some of our lingering obsessions here at Tapestry, because we have some news for you today. I am going to be retiring at the end of December after 20 wonderful years hosting Tapestry. And at the same time, the show is coming to an end after nearly 30 years on the air. A few more details coming your way later this episode. This is Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. It's a simple enough thing, putting pen to paper, and you might think of it as a purely physical act. But for Paul Antonio Atong, there's a lot more going on. When he picks up a pen, the whole exercise takes on a spiritual aspect. Paul Antonio works in calligraphy, gilding, and heraldic arts, and he finds the magic of this work isn't just in its beauty, it's in how it can help people find healing when they need it most. Here's Paul Antonio on finding purpose and peace through art. When I, when I write now, the writing has a really spiritual connotation for me. My name is Paul Antonio. My full name is Paul Antonio Atong. I generally go by Paul Antonio. I am an educator. I teach calligraphy and meditative practice. I fell in love with calligraphy when I was nine. My brother and I used to trace typefaces as kids, and then he brought home an Old English script, well, font that he had traced. And I could see that there was an underlying structure. And I said to him, if we had a big pen, we'd be able to, to write the letters like this. And he was like, what? One of my friends, he was doing calligraphy. His mother bought him a set, and he called me over and said, I have this thing, it's, it's called calligraphy. I was like, oh, what the? He said, it's really difficult to do, but I know you like writing. I asked mommy and she said I could give it to you. And I, when I saw it, I went, oh, a big pen, a big pen. <laughs> that sort of started me off on the road to the practice of this craft. I grew up in Trinidad in the West Indies. And you know, growing up in the Caribbean, it's, it was beautiful, but it wasn't easy. I said to mommy, can I get some nibs? And she said, they're really expensive. I can't afford them. And I knew that you could cut feathers and make quills. I ran down to the beach because we have these turkey vultures in Trinidad that we call Kobo. They molt and they drop them on the hot sand in the salt water. And it's so hot that they, they get cured. Now, I would just pick them up and carve them. And I learned to carve quills because of that. 
I used to sing, choir, perform, mummy would always be there. And she would always sit and she would always say, don't, don't, don't call me out, don't refer to me because she hates being in the spotlight and I'd always go, hi, mommy. <laughs> so she really encouraged me to, to follow my dream and to, to not feel I had to do something that everybody else was doing. When I was growing up, she was such an amazing woman and she really looked after us and without her support and her guidance and her openness to allow me to do what I wanted to do, um, I would not be doing calligraphy. I didn't have a lot of money growing up and mummy always used to kneel in front of us and say, your only way out of this is through education. And so we worked really hard. I moved to England when I was uh, 21 and I won one of the Commonwealth Foundation Arts and Crafts Awards, which was a scholarship to go and study something in the field of art and craft. Um, I went to Reading. I left Reading with a distinction and then went to Rygate and studied calligraphy, gilding and heraldic paintings. I couldn't afford the train fare in the morning, so I'd get the 9.30 train and I would work until 10 o'clock in the night. I worked so hard and I, I got this distinction. I also won the Scrivener's Award, so there are livery companies in England. They were guilds set up by the craftsmen and they were ordained by the king. So this happened in the Middle Ages. And so one of these livery companies, the Worshipful Company of Scriveners, awarded me one of their prizes. And to sort of connect back to the scribes who wrote my predecessors, that was, that was really quite beautiful. And out of that, I was asked to be one of the Crown Office scribes who wrote the laws for the Queen to sign. And once she signed them and the big red seal was put on it, they would become a law. So that was really quite crazy. I left Rygate and went to Birkbeck University to study Arabic calligraphy. And from there, I was headhunted by the Met Museum to go to Egypt to draw hieroglyphs in a pyramid for them. And I loved hieroglyphs as a child. I would buy all these books and, and my mom sort of looked at me one day and she said, I, I, hope, I hope you get to Egypt. And I sort of thought, I live in this little country. I'm never going to make it to Egypt. And I stopped, stopped reading about Egyptian hieroglyphs. 15 years later to end up in Egypt in a pyramid working was, was so amazing. And it brought me back to my, my love of Egypt. When I trained as a calligrapher, I fell in love with historical materials and techniques. And manuscripts, they are at the heart of what I do. Not just Western manuscripts, any kind of historical documentation, either hieroglyphs or, or you know, it's a cuneiform or you know, Mayan hieroglyphs, or anything that is historical. You know, I have a whole wall of pigments over there that I grind and I, you know, I lay gold and I use the same traditions that the monks would have used in the 14th century. Immediately, there is a connection between the manuscript and spiritualism. Monks writing documents, writing Bibles, would be listening to other monks chanting and of course, you know, I, I grew up singing, and so I, I would chant, I would do some Gregorian chanting. 
I could feel the writing resonating with the chanting. So it, it made me realize that the rhythm of the writing is directly related to the way in which the script from that period and the music from that period would work, how they would sort of, the synergy between these two things. So when we hold a manuscript and we're at peace with it, you can feel it resonating with this, this connection to God. As a practitioner, you focus on the practice, you focus on the writing, you're learning your craft, you're not really thinking that there's another side to this. And for a long time, for me, it was about the accuracy and the beauty of the writing. And I might cry here though. <laughs> and I was at this massive show and I was talking, I, I, I would do this lecture on the history of the alphabet and I would show how that letter evolved from Egyptian hieroglyphs through to the present day. I was sitting there demonstrating, there were all these people around talking, asking questions, and there was this little boy in front of me, David. He was so interested and I kept looking up because there was a man standing behind him who kept looking down at him. He was obviously his father. He was very not himself and I didn't understand what was going on. The next day, there was David again. And I said, oh, hello, you were here yesterday. And he said, yeah, yeah. why have you come back? He said, oh, I'd, I'd, I'd really like to see, I'd really like to see the letter. I said, oh, the history of one. I said, okay, well, your name's David, let's, let's do D. And so I started in Egyptian hieroglyphs, showing how the D evolved into the letter that we know it. And this old woman who was, she must have been like 90, she turned and I finished and I rolled it up and I said, this is for you, David. And she turned to him and she said, do you know how precious that is? He said, yes, I'm going to put it, get my daddy to put it up on the ceiling so when I lie in my bed, I can see it. So I left the tent to go and get some lunch and I was walking past his father. And I said, oh, hi, you're David's dad. He said, yeah. I said, where's David? He said, he's inside the tent looking at your work. Now we had all, we all submitted work, but there were no names on the work. It was a blind thing that people would just choose work without knowing who you were. And I looked and he was right in front of my piece. And then the father grabbed me and started crying. And I said, you are right. And he said, he said, David has severe attention deficit disorder. I have never seen him still for more than five minutes. And he has stood still for three hours. He said this morning he woke up at five o'clock and he was like, Daddy, Daddy, can we please go back and see him? Can we please go back and see him? And then later that day I was doing a, a demonstration with this thing in mind with David and I was writing and as I started to slow down with the writing and the flourishes and the breathing, there were about 40 people standing around me. And this woman just reached out and grabbed this man's hand next to her and squeezed it. These were all strangers and they were holding on to each other and people were crying and I was like, what's, what's going on here? There is something else happening here. It made me start to think about the practice as a meditation, not just for the practitioner, but also for, for the onlooker because they were experiencing the writing. And I started to think, how did this happen? What, what's going on here? And I realized that if we write in tandem with the breath, the writing becomes a focused meditation. It made me realize that there was something else, something more happening, something more than I had ascribed to, 
to, to this beautiful practice of writing. So over the years, I've been working on this calligraphy and meditation class that I've developed, which helps the practitioner to, to focus their breath in tandem with the way in which the lines are written. And it generates this beautiful meditative field. And when I teach this class, people cry. They cry all the time. And some of the, some of the comments are, I, I'm feeling things that I've hidden away. They're memories that have resurfaced, that I've locked away. And this practice is helping me to, or it has helped me to confront it, but in a, a peaceful way. There are a number of ways that I, I help students recognize that there is more happening here than just pretty writing. Recently, when I was in Trinidad giving a lecture, I taught them how to breathe. And I said, I want you to write your name, close your eyes, take your fire finger, which is your forefinger on the dominant hand, and write your name breathing rhythmically like this. And then at the end of it, I said, I just waited, let them be at peace, breathe a little bit. And then I said to them, slowly open your eyes. I said, how do you feel? People said, oh my gosh, I, I, it's like the whole day just drained away. And there were a couple of people crying in the audience. Um, and I said, listen, if you're crying, just know that that's a release that you needed. If you, if you are crying, don't worry about the people around you cry because you obviously need to cry and some people sitting next to others put their hand on their back and they just rub their back a little bit and you know it was such a beautiful experience with all of these people together working in a meditative field to help each other heal there's another technique i use i get them to write their name in the air and i get them to step into it and I've had people say, I can't, I, 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 I physically can't do it. I can't, I can't walk into that space. And so how do you coach someone to accept themselves? That, that's a hard one. And one of them that I do, which is really, which is really a shocker, is I get them to write their name and I get them to gather up their name, all the letters and everything, and pull it into themselves and say, I love you to themselves and the number of times I have seen people falter on this and not be able to to either get their name because they can't hold themselves and they can't even say I love you to themselves so little things like that I use in classes to help students understand where they are at in their lives mentally emotionally psychologically, physically. So that is me teaching and training you how to do this. When people practice art, it allows them a path back to themselves. And that's a beautiful experience when you get students to recognize that there is a path to beauty through art. Choosing calligraphy put me in a very different situation because it meant I was not following 
the norm, you know, my friends who became lawyers and doctors and, and politicians and these things, I, I was doing something very different to that. And you, you have to find a way to, to find the energy to support yourself because yes, it's great, it, it comes from your, your family and my mom is brilliant and my, my brother and my sisters and my aunt and my grandma. You know, everybody was really wonderfully pushing me, but it's hard to, to be that different and not want to give up. So I think young me seeing where I've gotten to would be encouraged to push harder. Paul Antonio is a trained calligrapher, gilder, and heraldic artist. He worked as a crown office scribe for Queen Elizabeth II for 18 years. Paul Antonio spoke to you from his home in Portugal, where he now teaches classes on calligraphy and meditative practice. This is Tapestry, keeping you company and helping you make sense of the world. If you're listening online at cbc.ca, hi there. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app, on Spotify, on SiriusXM Satellite Radio, and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. A bit of news this week. I'm going to be retiring at the end of December. And we're told the show is also being wrapped up after 29 years as the CBC's weekly exploration of the messy business of being human. Hello and welcome to Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. Well, that was a while ago, September the 7th, 2003, my first time hosting Tapestry. And at the time, I was looking for the right way to introduce myself and say hello to you. I was at the computer this week trying to write a few words about Tapestry, and I realized what I needed was right in front of me. It was a letter from a listener in Grand Cash, Alberta. Hoda Gamrawi wrote... Welcome, Mary Hines, to the program. What an adventure. And what an opportunity to learn about the human spirit. It feels to me it is the people's program, so to speak, and we as your listeners are going to have a new friend. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Hoda, for writing and for pointing to the human spirit as being central to what we do. A clip from 20 years ago from my very first episode as host of Tapestry. And we've tried to keep that idea going, with the human spirit being at the heart of everything we do here. Our CBC colleagues are working on the weekend schedule and what it's going to sound like in the new year. You'll hear more details on that before too long. As we say goodbye to Tapestry, we would love to hear from you. Was there an episode that stayed with you? a guest whose wisdom was helpful somehow or encouraging in your life? Give us a call and be part of our final episode at the end of December. The number is 416-205-2424. Once again, give us a call at 416-205-2424 so we can send the show off in style. I'm Mary Hines. This is Tapestry. Thank you.
Anil Sankar tried to hide his Indo-Caribbean heritage as long as he could. The way he tells it, he spent a lot of time in his bedroom and in the backyard, but never out front in case he was caught with a piece of roti in his hands. But something changed Anil's drive to hide that side of his life. Here's Anil on family, music, and the rhythms that bind us. So I was born in Canada, in Toronto, but my parents are from uh, the Caribbean. They were born in the island of Trinidad and Tobago. My ancestors are from India. And so, yeah, I'm a descendant of, proudly, of Indo-Caribbean indentured laborers. My parents met in Toronto in the late 60s, and they shared a common faith. Both my parents are Hindus. You know when you fit in and, and, and when you don't. And I got to say, growing up as this you know, brown kid, I grew up in Willowdale. It's predominantly Italian. And there were uh, people who were Jewish. There were friends who were Greek. You don't want to deviate too much from what the norm is, right? And at the time, the music was... A lot of uh, metal, rock music. And I remember um, we were sitting at school and one of my friends pulled out uh, one of those, um, dating myself, uh, tape recorder, just the small tapes. And uh, he was playing uh, Back in Black. I kind of followed the lead of my uh, friends, a lot of my white friends. The smart thing to do as an immigrant at that time, get a friend who's white. It just makes it easier. It really does, you know, because then like he's a friend of ours. And I didn't really have an identity, right? What identity is I'm born in Canada. I listen to metal with my friends. Black Sabbath. (laughs) Ozzy Osbourne. Def Leppard, Triumph. So we genuinely bonded over that. And one thing I always left out of the conversation was any of the music we played at home. One of my best friend's parents asked me, really interested, like your dinners must be fantastic at your house. You guys probably eat like dal or you might eat curries and things like that. And then... And I was like, no, no, I, I eat, like, uh, craft dinner. Yeah, we eat a lot of craft dinner, uh, spaghetti, uh, hamburgers, all of it a lie. <laughs> and it was because it just didn't seem socially acceptable. That, those are the days in the 70s when people generally talked about curry. It was a pejorative, right? It was like, oh, do you eat curry? Do you guys eat curry at home? And it's kind of pronounced in that way I remember it. It would be like, no, no, what are you, what? What are you talking about? We were born right here. My parents too. Just don't come over, ever. <laughs> Stay away. But the thing about it is I lived five minutes from Young Street, right? And it seemed to be like the thoroughfare <laughs> from my school to the mall, literally. So there's no hiding. I spent more time in the backyard and in my bedroom, never in the front, <laughs> lest I be caught. <laughs> The piece of roti in my hands. Of all the things I think my parents could have agreed to, the worst thing that they could have done is they agreed to host the wedding for my cousin 
and her uh, husband at our house. Traditional Hindu wedding. And I don't think they told me until like the day before. Like, I was like, oh, really happy. Cool. Yeah. You know, everybody's going to be coming over and, you know, there's going to be food and there's going to be a party and whatever. And it's like, oh, and then also um, what will happen is uh, the bride will walk in a traditional red sari or whatever and come down the driveway and then a procession. What? Wait a minute. Why do you got to make this all public? Why does everybody need to know what's going on here? And then it all dawned on me, kind of hit me with like, oh my God. So I prayed, and I'm not kidding. I prayed for rain that day. I know it was my cousin's wedding, but I hoped it was like the worst day ever. In fact, if there could have been a storm and they could have gotten into the house safely, or maybe just stayed where they are. I don't know, get married by telephone, something, just not here. And of course, what happened is a Saturday and it was sunny. It was sunny and kind of warm for March. And so there, my cousin came in, dressed beautifully as a bride in her sari. And then her husband arrived in this, one of the traditional Indian outfits, but it was all pink. He had the turban and he had like a a crown with flowers kind of hanging down in front of his face. They're all strung over his face and... He came in and the uh, the Hindu priest, the pundit, came, went and met him on the front lawn. They had a little ceremony there and I'm just sitting there going, <laughs> I wanted to knock on the window. Hurry up, get him inside. I think I was at the front door looking out through the window. And I was like, I'm not stepping outside. It was like sheer terror. Because already it was hard enough to try to fit in and explain what goes on, you know. Nobody has really, in society at that point, had real knowledge of what Hinduism was. People knew where Muslims were, and if you're Jewish, they knew, right? But generally, in in Hindu uh, worship, it's very much a show. It's a lot of fire and smoke and a lot of music and things banging and, you know, singing and meditate a little bit with the ohms. You know, for someone who was unfamiliar, right, I can't explain it. Fortunately, they got into the house, and I don't know how I got through that, but I do remember that I was pretty much, you know, a self-imposed house arrest for that day and the day after. My name is Gandhi, Mohandas K. Gandhi. Well, whoever you are, we don't want you here. I suggest you get back on that train before it leaves. They seem to want me. I remember distinctly coming out of seeing uh, the movie Gandhi. So I was about 13, 14 at the time. At the end, there's the scene where Gandhi's walking through a a courtyard. And as he's walking through, all of the supporters have come out. And they're cheering him on and praising him for the work he's done. Then, of course, uh, Gandhi's uh, assassin goes to bow at his feet. And then he raises up and fires a few shots that would kill him. The final scene of the movie, it's his funeral, nation mourning, and his uh, body is, is, is being taken through the streets and, you know, millions upon millions of people crowded around. Near the end of the movie, um, they played one of Gandhi's favorite Hindu bhajans. It's like a Hindu spiritual music. It really talks about how someone who is a devotee of the Hindu god Vishnu shows concern for others and cares for others and lives a life in service. 
And after seeing the film and watching this portrayal of what Gandhi's life was like, it was a moment of both pride and a moment where I felt if someone who lived his life and came from nothing can stand up against the British and bring independence to so many millions of people, it's a bit of inspiration there. And what really got me at the end of that movie, more importantly, is when they played that song by Ishneva Jandito. The song was uh, sung by a famous Indian singer, uh, Lata Mangeshkar. And it's uh, it's a beautiful song. And, I, uh, you know, I'm walking into the theater, and not the most uh, manly thing to do, but, you know, there I am walking through a parking lot full of people. They were all good. And next thing you know, I felt tears kind of welling up and... Uh, in this very emotional moment, my parents looked at me and I'm sure they wondered what the heck was wrong with me because that's not in my character really to kind of be that emotional around them, right? And so that was the moment where I kind of had that epiphany that there was something more to it. It was a moment of pride, a moment of sorrow, but it was a moment of possibility and it marked a very important uh, transformation my own identity and my own beliefs and uh, my own confidence. Finally, when I, I got older, uh, first year, end of first year university, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go visit my parents' homeland in Trinidad and Tobago. Kind of surprised my parents. Because honestly, up to that point, I'm described by many people in my family as probably being the whitest member of my family. I'd be the last guy, you'd think. And I got there, and it's kind of interesting. When you go from a country where uh, you're kind of struggling or fighting to be accepted for who you are, and then you just get to the Caribbean, you land it's warm, the sun is beautiful. And then I looked around and what I found uh, as I spent more time with my family and their friends was, these are just kids who are going to university just like me. They're going to the University of West Indies. They're all studying to be engineers, doctors, lawyers, and they're aiming high. We went to the clubs, and I remember going in there, and it's like, this was better than any of the clubs we had in the city here. And I went up into that club and walked in, the, and then the music is, is booming, dance hall music, blended in with some soca. And then I watched everyone around me, and they're like, good-looking people, dressed modern, and like people with money rolling around these cars, and I'm going like, my whole perception changed. And it's sad that it took those material things to kind of make me go, okay, now I can feel good about myself. But I realized that, yeah, cool, that, this is something I want to be a part of. It just opened up my eyes to that other part of myself that I'd been hiding for a long time. The moment that marked sort of my, I guess, that ultimate coming out and letting everybody know who I was was my wedding. My wife is from uh, Trinidad and Tobago. We had a gigantic uh, Indian Hindu wedding, 300 guests. 
My wife was dressed in a beautiful red sari, much like my cousin was. We had all the music and the dancing and had all the garlands and flowers and everything that you could think of. And the giant Ganesh statue right at the front door. And there I came in dressed in my uh, traditional Indian outfit with the whole decorated turban and pointy shoes. And I was dressed in beige. There was some gold there. It wasn't particularly uh, extravagant. So kind of muted relative to the pink that my cousin's husband was wearing when she got married. Cool part about it when I think about it is there's all my friends and my mother's work friends. And basically, you know, half the crowd was not anybody from uh, Indo-Caribbean background, you know. And there I was. And it was a proud moment to see the beauty in what was going on, but also in the beauty of the culture. It was important for me at some level, whether I recognize it or not, I knew that it was important for me to get over whatever it was. And this was a moment uh, that everybody will know, you know, that Anil was um, also Indian. Anil Sankar is a writer and marketing director at CBC Radio. You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in. Whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, or on CBC Radio 1. If you're listening online at cbc.ca slash tapestry, hello to you. I'm Mary Hines. Starting a degree at a new school is always difficult and confusing, but adding moving to a different part of the globe, it can be downright terrifying. Here's Gursaib Singh on how he's trying to help international students in Canada avoid his mistakes. When I see people like who used to watch my videos back in their home country, now they are in Canada, I meet them like if I'm going to a shopping mall or somewhere. I meet them, they say, okay, your videos helped me a lot. My name is Gursahib Singh. Full-time, I work as an embedded firmware and software developer. On the side, I am a content creator. I create videos related to Canada, like life in Canada, how to settle in Canada. If somebody is coming to Canada for the first time to settle here as an international student or as a permanent resident. Hey guys, this is Gursahib and welcome back to my channel. I hope you all are doing very well. I personally did a lot of mistakes in my student life. So I thought if I communicate these things to the future students, so they won't repeat those mistakes. Some were financial, some were lifestyle mistakes. That's why I started a YouTube channel. I came to Canada in 2018, like five years ago. I did not expect anything because I knew if I try to expect anything, okay, this will happen to me or I will do this in Canada. Most probably that thing is not going to happen. So that breaks so many hearts. I landed in Winnipeg, which is in Manitoba. So uh, because I have few relatives over there. 
I spent 10 days in Winnipeg. I was talking to few people uh, in Thunder Bay because my college was in Thunder Bay. One of them agreed, okay, there is a room available. I was really happy, okay, I finally have found a room. I'm gonna go to Thunder Bay and start my life over there. At night, I left Winnipeg. I reached Thunder Bay at 7 o'clock in morning. I reached that address and as soon as they opened the door, they said, okay, there is nothing available. Uh, all the rooms are filled. We don't know anybody in this country, like particularly in Thunder Bay. In 2018, there were not so many people like immigrants uh, and students. So there was nobody I knew. I just requested him, okay, I don't know anybody here. Where will I go? At seven o'clock in the morning, uh, we had a an argument kind of thing, like for half an hour. And then he told me, okay, you can live in the living room. There is no bedroom available. You can put a bed sheet and then live over there for three to four days until you find a room for yourself or a place to live for yourself. So I lived there and there was another guy living in the living room. So we all were just living there for like two, three days, not more than that. Because it was really uncomfortable living in the living room because there is no bedding or something. I was just uh, sleeping on my bed sheet. So I had to face a lot of challenges in the first year to settle down here in Canada. Finding a part-time job is the biggest thing because the fees that international students pay, that's way high, like four times what domestic students pay. International students pay around $10,000 for one semester. Total four semesters is gonna be $40,000. So you have to work part-time, you have to work full-time during the breaks to collect that amount of money and then pay the fees. That's a big, big challenge. I had a four months break after my two semesters. So I used to work 70 to 80 hours per week just to collect my fees. And during the studies are going on 30 to 35 hours per week. It's quite challenging. And later, after your graduation is completed, you have to find a full-time job in your in your field, then get permanent residency. So many things to do. <laughs> there were no resources available. Like there was no blueprint or any kind of guidelines available. Okay, when you come to Canada as an international student, do these 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 things. Your life will be simpler. There was nothing like that. We just went with the flow. So it was like, we are living your life and simultaneously you are learning things. I actually started my channel back in 2018. Like before coming to Canada, I wanted to share my journey as an international student in Canada. So I made one video back in India, how to apply for the student visa, what are the challenges, what are the proper steps you can take, how much expensive it's gonna be if you want to study in Canada. So I made a video, uploaded on YouTube. I didn't get too many views, 100 or 200 maximum. Then I came to Canada, I thought, okay, whatever I do in Canada, I'll go. If I'm going to get a SIN number, I'll make a video on that. If I'm going to the bank to get my GIC, I'll make a video on that. But being a student in Canada, it's very difficult. <laughs> you don't get time to make videos and edit them. So it was not possible. So I dropped the idea. I focused on gaining skills, getting a good job after I graduate. After completing one year working here in Canada, like full time in my own field, then I thought, okay, let's now start a YouTube channel and share the stuff. I started in July, 2021. I kept on creating videos. I did not look at the views watch hours or subscribers what is it going on i did not look at that 
my first target was complete 50 videos before 2021 finishes i uploaded one video in october it was like the worst intake for coming to canada as an international student as compared to the other two intakes like there is september intake like fall intake summer intake and winter intake right and this was the video which went viral for the first time and from there my channel started gaining traction Hey guys, this is Guru Sahib, and welcome back to my channel. I hope you all are doing very well. So, if you are planning to come to Canada as an international student, this video is going to be very useful for you. So, basically, yeah, a few days ago, I made a video in which we talked about the fact that if you are an international student in Canada, but most of the things you have to do before landing in Canada. So, I hope you all liked the video. If you liked it, please like, share, and subscribe. And as always, stay healthy and keep us safe. there were few people there were a couple of channels which were giving information uh, about canada life in canada for international student for permanent residents there were few channels but i just did my analysis and i saw okay i don't have to be better than them i just have try to be different try try to make some different kind of content i did not have a script i just write the pointers okay i'm going to talk about this i'm going to talk about talk about this it's all natural it's coming out of my heart If I meet my subscribers, they say when we watch your videos, it feels like we are listening to our big brother. Most of the students I have met in Canada, they say my parents used to watch your videos and they shared your videos on my WhatsApp, and then I started watching your videos. Like I don't know why, but parents are the first point of contact, and then they send it to their kids. Best feeling was there were some guests back in India and at my home. there is a whole wall on which we have a lot of pictures like a collage of pictures and there was a girl about 15 years of age she identified me from the picture oh it's he's your son so they started talking about me for half an hour and one hour the videos are so good we are so that was one of the proudest moment for me like somebody came to our house back in india for the first time and they recognized me sometimes my father goes to some place or my mother meets somebody they are known by my name so it's a great feeling it's a great feeling i used to be a big time introvert i was not talking to anybody in my school days or in my college days i did not ask questions in the class if i had a question from the teacher i was very reluctant or hesitant to ask questions and talk to people now i can talk to anybody like and it has expanded my network now i have so many people i know so many people if i go somewhere somewhere i will find somebody who can help me out me and my wife were on vacation we landed in edmonton but our vacation actual vacation was starting from calgary so we had to drive from edmonton to calgary so that's around 300 kilometers and we were on a rental car we were driving we almost reached red deer which is like one major town between those two cities i could see from far like there is a walmart but we are out of gas i don't know what to do like it was kind of middle of nowhere i don't know what to do and then there was one option i could call for emergency help it it would have taken a long time we just thought okay i'll post a story on instagram we are in red deer we are we have a problem we are running out of gas somebody can help us that would be great <laughs> and like i got two three messages because red deer is small town so there are not so many international students but in a place like middle of nowhere some subscriber came okay 
message came okay i can be there in like 10 minutes give me 10 minutes i'll be there and he came with a like can of gas and we went to a ga- nearby gas station and then went to calgary if you asked me this question back in 2018 or 19 how you feel about canada i would say it's awesome over here like i can plan my future i can buy a house in canada if i came to canada as an international student in 2023 i cannot think of buying a house like my message to so many students who are planning to come to canada it's going to be think before you come to canada now i have no idea what i'm going to do in terms of using that creative side on my content creation thing but i'll keep posting videos i'll keep making videos i receive messages on my instagram so many messages it's always flooded with messages and somebody is always saying like okay this video helped me a lot to find a job or this video helped me to settle in canada keep on getting these messages and it feels so good how can i express i just tell them thank you thank you so much i hope you i'm able to help you in future also in some way or the other what else i can do <laughs> Gursaib Singh describes himself as just a random guy on YouTube sharing his experience. In his day job, Gursaib is a software developer. Gursaib spoke to you from his home in Kitchener, Ontario. That's it for us this week. If you missed the news at the top of this episode, a quick recap here. I'm going to retire at the end of December after 20 wonderful years here at Tapestry, and we are told the show is also being wrapped up after 29 years as the CBC's weekly exploration of the messy business of being human. Spirituality, psychology, philosophy, the human spirit, There aren't many places in journalism where you can get into all of it week after week. It's been such a rich experience for all of us on the team. As we say goodbye to Tapestry, we would love to hear from you. Was there an episode that stayed with you? A guest whose wisdom was helpful somehow or encouraging in your life? Give us a call and be part of our final episode at the end of December. The number to call is 416-205-2424. Once again, give us a call at 416-205-2424 to say farewell to Tapestry. A word from CBC Radio, our colleagues are working on the weekend schedule and what it's going to sound like in the new year. You'll hear more details on that before too long. This episode was produced by McKenna Hadley-Burke, Armand Egbali, and Anne Lang. Technical production by Laura Antonelli. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.